seen unless you celebrate a birthday or an anniversary we'd like to recognize you well praise the lord it's good to be together today trust that you had a great uh thanksgiving and uh looking forward now to the christmas season uh, season sorry uh, we have a teen christmas party scheduled december 2nd christmas missions offering on december 3rd uh, this is offering that we use for the missionaries sent from our church uh, to be able to have a nicer Christmas time. And so if you can give to that, that would be a blessing. We have our cantata on December the 10th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, patch program December 17th at the afternoon service. Ladies Christmas party on the 18th, 7 o'clock at our house. And so I encourage you to mark that down. Christmas Eve service, uh, we will... Uh, have the regular morning service and at one o'clock will be our candlelight uh, Christmas Eve service so uh, mark that down plan to be with us it'll be a good time going to have Brother Foster come back at least in a song and then we're going to introduce Brother Carter and get going with the Sunday school please join us to sing hymn number 131 Christ is Almighty It's an honor to have the Carters with us. Uh, Brother and Mrs. Carter are being used of the Lord in a great way down in Oklahoma City right now. I've known Brother Carter since he was just a little guy. I watched him go to youth camp, and he's a second-generation servant of the Lord. His dad has uh, started churches all over Kansas and 
uh, in Oklahoma for years now, and Brother Carter has started churches, but now his main emphasis uh, is the church that he's in. Uh, they've got a, a school, an academy. They have a college that they work on teaching counseling. And uh, some of you might remember Brother Mike Hayes years and years and years ago. We had Brother Mike Hayes with us, and uh, Brother Carter uh, sat under his teaching and then took and adopt, adapted a lot of what Brother Hayes used to teach. And so we had him do this at youth camp and uh, felt it very beneficial and so wanted to invite them to come and be with us today. So Brother Carter, if you'd come, this is his lovely wife right here, uh, and we appreciate her coming as always. God bless. Blessing to be here, and um, have appreciated Matt Singers and their ministry, the church here for many years. Um, it's uh, it's exciting to be here, actually, and see um, God's doing here. Uh, we have a beautiful place up here, too, especially today. Uh, you know, with the snow, makes it probably even prettier. So for those that are here, congratulations on the beautiful spot. And um, know that that singer is one of those strange ones that likes the snow. So I'm sure he is very excited today. But uh, it is a blessing to be here. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with just uh, t chatting into the lesson because we I only have so much time and we have a lot to get through. So take your Bibles over to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Romans chapter number 1. I'm going to start here. And the lessons I did at youth camp, some of you were there. Uh, the topic was on dealing with gender identity and modern issues that we're seeing in our culture, which is a a massive change, obviously, from where we have been culturally for many years, and the the obvious um, conflict that is present. And by the way, it it's a social and a um, societal conflict that's going on. It's not just a conflict the word of God, uh, although it did begin there, <clears throat> and Satan's been attacking the God's word for so many years. Uh, and when I was a child, um, the acceptance of the homosexual agenda and lifestyle and all that, it wasn't even present. I mean, it wasn't even a consideration. As a matter of fact, if you said before long this is going to be mainstream, you were saying, oh, you're crazy, slippery slope arguments, never true, all that. But we certainly have slid a long way from when I was a kid, and I'm young. Very, very young, all right? And so uh, we had this, um, this movement, really, over the past 30 years into a place where now uh, young people are being bombarded with the, this stuff in, in public schools and, and social media, uh, from peers and the, the movies, and television. Disney is just a filth hole. It, it is horrible. Uh, the, the stuff they're putting out and trying to uh, promote and propagandize to pervert our children. And I'm talking little children. It, it's everywhere in our society. And people at the highest echelons of authority and power are behind it and pushing it, endorsing it, 
and you're a hate monger if you don't accept and endorse it. And so we, we've just shifted completely as a society, and, and we have to stop and kind of do a little bit of a, a self-examination and consider how did we get here? And, because we can't get out of this situation if we don't understand how we got into the situation. Right? It's one thing to rail against these things. It's another thing to provide solid answers that we can use to help our young people and those that are deceived, and they are deceived. Multitudes of people um, uh, that are involved in these things, they're, they're not evil people, the majority of them. They're deceived people. Right? Now, I'm not saying there are no evil people. There certainly are. Right? There are people who have come to the place that they have evil intent, but the majority of them are just simply deceived. And, and they don't understand, and they don't know what else to do. They don't have a view of where else life could take them. And so we want to take three thoughts today, and each service we're going to take one. In this first service, we're going to address this issue of, of truth, and we're going to talk about a quest for truth. And then in the second service, we're going to talk about a quest for identity. And then in the third service, we're going to talk about a quest for meaning. And I really do believe these primary ways that Satan has brought destruction to our young culture um, in the in these areas. These are the, the prominent areas of attack that you see uh, against our young people and against others in our culture as well. So we're going to start in Romans chapter number one. And I really, <clears throat> I see this passage is a, um, obviously a well-known passage and often we refer to it when we talk about these issues, don't we? Because uh, of them being spoken about here in Romans chapter number one. But I want to kind of lay out a thought for you, a progressive thought process. And, and I'm going to... If you were to go back, we're not going to... For ...that I, I do... Um, God accepting the
that is actually in chapter number six of has three primary sources, okay? have depression because of physical issues, right? It can be um, spiritual. Uh, it can be because of spiritual conflict that you're dealing with. We see that actually with David uh, quite a bit. And then it can also be um, through because of your thinking. Now, statistically speaking, statistically speaking, the vast majority of depression is from that third area, Okay? And if you want to read an interesting book, go find a book by um, uh, Michael Jakob, uh, who wrote a book called Depression is Contagious. Ignore all of his solutions because they're junk, they're, they're modern um, philosophy and whatnot. Um, but he, I, he's, his book, Depression is Contagious, after 40 years of secular clinical psychological study, came to the conclusion that there's five primary thinking patterns that produce depression and that people pass on to their children and that that's why depression runs in family. All five of those, by the way, are found on this chart right here in relationship to Cain. And that wasn't, that wasn't, um, I didn't take them out of his book. I, they, these, these came out, but, but interestingly, not the same words, but the same concepts are, are found in his book of those five things. So there's depression. But then the second thing down there, it says sexual perversion. Now I want you to hold your hand here in Romans 1, and I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 4 just really quickly, and I just want you to see this connection, and this is really where we're going to pick up and kind of um, dive off today, because in chapter number one, 4 of Genesis, verse 1 through 16, we see the story of Cain, and then immediately following the account of Cain in verse number 19, really the next account of an individual we read is concerning Lamech. And in verse um, 19, it says, Lamech took unto him two wives. He's the first sexual deviant in the Bible. We know he's a sexual deviant because Jesus said from the beginning, it was God's plan to have one man and one woman. So he deviated from God's plan according to Jesus. He was a sexual deviant, the very first one in the Bible. 
And look at verse number 23. It says, Lamech said to his wives, uh, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Hearken to my speech. I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, I truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And so what we see here is this, this um, self-indulgence. All right, We put him over on this side with self-focus, uh, self-indulgence. He took two wives. And then we see vengeance on this side. We also see victimhood. If Cain's avenged sevenfold, I'll be avenged seventy and sevenfold. And so we can clearly see these three uh, main points on the left side all present in the first sexual deviation. Now that's not unimportant. It's an important thing to take note of. Because when we go to Romans chapter number 1, and so uh, turn back there, I want you to notice we're going to see all of these things from expectation all the way down to vindication on the left side, all present in Romans chapter number 1 as we consider this, this perversion. And we're going to come back to this, and I'm going to kind of draw out this issue of the quest for truth as we're, as we're uh, noticing these. But start in verse number um, seven, uh, 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For herein is the righteousness of God revealed, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And I want you to, don't separate these two verses from what we're about to read. Because it's important to recognize that the answer for perversion and the wickedness of our culture is still the gospel. The answer is still coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and learning to live by faith, right? And so by faith is how we overcome sinful things in this world and in our lives. Um, so in verse number 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, I want you to, uh, let's read the next verse and then we're going to point out a couple things. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I want you to take that understanding or these thoughts, okay? Vain in their imagination, they became the word vain here means self-focused. Now, often we hear the word vain and we apply the word emptiness to it. That's a pretty common way to describe vain. And that is true in some portions of Scripture. When Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he's, the word there often means empty, worthless, useless. But vain in the Bible also means the same thing that you and I would use it for today, that person's really vain. What does it mean? They're self-focused. So they became vain in their imagination. They became self-focused in their imagination. Notice in verse 20 at the end there, they're without excuse. Well, who, who's making excuses? People who are trying to justify themselves. See the blame-shifting side of things, right? Um, uh, then if you... Um, look here, that idea of, of their opinions or imaginations, I'm sorry, um, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. And I didn't put this in 
I didn't mention this a minute ago, but you notice the link between blame shifting and self-focus is unthankfulness, ingratitude. Okay? They're ungrateful for what has been done in their life. They have wrong expectations. They are ungrateful for what has been done, and they are trying to shift the blame. Because of their wrong expectations, they had wrong behaviors, which then brought judgment and destruction and condemnation in their life. But they're not willing to accept that it's their fault. It's got to be someone else's fault. So they're shifting the blame, and they're unthankful for what they do have. They become completely focused on self, all right? Look at the way that this self-focus um, becomes magnified in their life. In verse um, 22, it says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, made it like themselves, Right? unto birds and forfeited beasts and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own heart, self, right? To dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. So now we have this self-focus and this, this perversion that's taking place. And I want you to notice the connection here between what he says in verse 25 the self-focus, and then changing the truth of God into a lie. As they become self-focused, they begin to reject and pervert truth. They begin to reinterpret things to fit their own idea of truth. Please catch that, okay? Because if you go back to the first portion in verse number 19 and 20, we notice that it says, in verse 19, because that which may be known of God, so true knowledge, God has showed it to them, it's observable, and the invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, it's, and then he says, being understood by things that are made, it's rational, it's understandable, right? Truth is observable, understandable, and rational. That's what those verses just said, Right? And then he says in, in this latter portion, he says, they have changed the truth. What's going on there? There's two types of truth, we might say. Um, there's there's um, truth that is, uh, as the Bible says, observable, understandable, and rational. We would call that objective truth, meaning Everyone can agree on it. It's clear, right? Um, we, we look outside and we say there's snow on the ground. And that can be tested. We can go out there and stick our hand down there and get cold, right? We can ball it up and throw it at someone. And we've thrown that snowball and, you know, we've felt good inside, right? Um, but uh, but that they, they, and they say, quit throwing snow at me, right? It's observable. It's understandable. It's rational. We can, we can test it, we can uh, examine it, okay? And we can all agree on what it is. That's objective truth. The other type of truth that's in our world, and it's, it is a type of truth, but it's subjective truth, meaning it's our opinion. Like the subjective truth that snow is good, that some people have, all right? That's a subjective truth. That is an opinion, 
There is no way to verify that snow is just a good thing. We might be able to point to some good things we see from it, and we might be able to enjoy it and all that, but other people might look at it and go, it's horrible, I hate it, it makes the roads terrible, and, and you know, the, the ice and kept me home from church and, and all that type of stuff. And, you know, uh, so there's, there's two sides to this debate. Does that make sense? Right. That it's snow, there's no debate. It fits a defined parameter. It's objective. Whether it's good or not is debatable. Okay? And that is my opinion. And that's subjective. There are people that have all kinds of subjective opinions that are good and bad. Okay? Um, Good subjective opinions like Kansas basketball is the best, right? Bad subjective opinion. We won't go into all those. All right. Um, but those are, those are just opinions. Now, what, what has happened? I want you to catch this because this is, this is what Romans is talking about. God gave some things that could be observed, could be understood, and were rational. They were logical. Right? Please understand, we do not actually have a blind faith in God. He is observable in all around us. And He has expressed Himself to us. And the Bible is, a, is rational and understandable and visible, and we can see Him clearly expressing, and we can see the, the truth. We can study and we can even know that like, there's proof that this is the Word of God. It's not just my opinion that it's the Word of God. There's external proofs that it's the Word of God. We, we can look at the fact that there's, you know, four, you know 1,400 years of, of men that, that wrote and all the different people that wrote, over 80 people. Uh, is that right? No, um, my brain's slipping here on the numbers. But uh, the number of men, that and, and there's no contradictions, and, and we can see the secular verifications that, of the truth of the Word of God. There's many secular verifications of the truth of the Word of God. And then we can see internal proofs. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the greatest proofs of the truth of the Word of God. And we can verify this is the Word of God. I mean, this isn't subjective, okay? It's not just blind faith to look at the King James Bible and say, that's the Word of God. It's not just blind faith. I can verify it, okay? And I have this understanding and rational understanding concerning the existence of God by observable science and observable nature, by observing the Word of God and the verifications of its authenticity and veracity. I can observe all of those things. But what happens is, he says here in these verses, in verse number um, 18 and, and 19, I'm sorry, 19 and 20, that while he gave us truth that is observable, and rational and understandable, what happens when people become uh, uh, self-focused and unthankful and and self-justifying and and all of the... What happens is, is they begin to change truth from objective to subjective. When I was a young person, most of you will uh, uh, remember this yourselves, that there was no such thing as my truth. If I ever said something like, well, my truth is to my parents or a teacher, I would have gotten hit in the side of the head. There is no such thing as your truth. There's truth and your opinion, and that's it, right? 
uh, there's, there is no your truth. But what's happened in our culture because of the, this, this fo- and, and our whole culture has drifted this way, by the way, is they've taken truth and they've flipped it upside down so that subjective opinion is more important than observable truth. My opinion, how I feel. And how dare you say that the way I feel or how I think isn't right, it's my truth. And you're a hate monger, right? It doesn't matter if you can observe that men have definite qualities and women have definite qualities. It doesn't matter if there's actual genetic scientific proof that men and women are not only physically different, by the way, in, in our skeletal structure, in our, in our uh, hormonal makeup and all of that type of stuff, but also that there's, there's, it goes to the very DNA and the chromosomes and, and all of those things, that those things are verifiable and undeniable unless objective truth is subject to subjective truth. That's what happens in Romans 1. Look, we had the objective truth first, but in verse 25, they changed the truth of God into a lie. Subjective truth became the prominent thing in life. It became more important than what is objectively true, to the point where where people who absolutely know true things refuse to acknowledge true things as truth because it's less important than the opinions of other people. Okay, notice the result of this. Please catch this. This is not, I'm not imposing this on the text. This is the, this is the outline of this text. Look at verse number 26. For God gave them up, for this cause, God gave them up to vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise the men, leaving the natural use of the women, woman, burned in their lust, one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat, that's homosexuality. A sexual perversion. Now, it's interesting because we're, we're about to see, and this is just my, this is my uh, perspective on this, but we're about to see a big conflict between the gay community and the trans community. It's already started, okay? And the reason we're about to see a big conflict is because they have actually got opposing philosophies. But they've all been under this big umbrella together. But this opposing philosophy is the way that the homosexual community, the gay community has, has made inroads is by declaring that someone is born gay and there's nothing they can do about it. But the trans community philosophy is that your gender is constantly morphing and changing and your attractions are constantly morphing and changing. Now those two things cannot coexist. And so there's about to be a civil war within the LGBTQ2 whatever plus community. There is. You're already starting to see it. Okay, You're already starting to see it. It's about to, I think, explode onto the public scene. But both of them fall into the same category of perversion. Now, someone might say, well, and this is a a dumb and popular thing to say. Well, the Bible uh, doesn't really talk about these things. 
Yeah, it, it clearly talks about it right here. I mean, it clearly talks about it. clearly talks about it in Leviticus. It clearly talks about it in other portions of scriptures as well. You say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about trans issues. Well, of course it does. Um, it specifically says a man shall not wear that which pertaineth to a woman. And, and it specifically talks about a woman and how she's to address her attire and, and so forth like that. I mean, it specifically talks about these things. It, it absolutely talks about them. It was an issue not just that, that recently came on the scene. God addressed these things and laid out the progression of how we go from a, a society that is um, sinful but has a basic structure of morality, which is where we were, to a society that is wholly given to immorality, which is where we are. And, and it happened very quickly in a short span of time where that threshold was crossed and, and we just went, Phew. okay. And this sexual perversion is a direct result of that self-focused indulgence there. Looked at, look at verse number 28 and says, uh, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to work those things, <clears throat> to do those things which are not convenient. And what you're about to see happen leading out of this verse is that people become um, victimizers. Okay? And those that are victimizers also often play the victim. And they declare themselves victims. Okay? And so the, perver the sexual perversion that begins in, in the pre preceding verses creates victimization, and then it creates more victimhood following this. In verse number 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, and then he lists fornication, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without natural affection, uh, uh, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. And we'll stop there for a second. But what happens here is that there becomes um, the we, we get to that phase of extreme thinking, and there's a lot of things mentioned there since that's up top there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to erase this here. But if you, if you think about how, how man is um, created, right? We're created in the image of God, and we have three parts, and I'm going to do a little, um, little drawing here. So we have our flesh, we have the spirit, and we have our soul. Soul is our Intellect, our will, and emotions, are, and there's a lot more. We, this is a whole series of conversations here, but um, just for understanding purposes, I'm going to put this here, R, that R right there. What happens in this process is that at some point, and, and I, don't, I can't tell you what point it is because I think it... Um, I think there's a threshold. It's kind of like um, Hebrews 4.12 where it says, The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than two-edged sword, piercing, dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's a threshold between meditation and intention that we don't ever really know where that line is, where we think we can think about something wrong and not do it until all of a sudden we decide to do it and we don't know where that line got crossed, okay? There's a threshold somewhere in this diagram, in that self-focus, 
to victimhood, to extreme thinking, somewhere along in there, there's a threshold. And that threshold has to do with this center point here, and this R represents what the Bible calls the reins, okay? R-E-I-N-S. And the reins are the same word as translated reins and translated kidney, uh, obviously, right? Um, and the only time the word kidney is used is when they're talking about sacrifices. It was one of the things they were to put on the altar when they made a sacrifice was the kidney. But reins has to do with control, doesn't it? R-E-I-N-S, it's like the reins of a horse. That's exactly the same word, okay? It has to do with control. And I believe what it pictures when they put that kidney up is they were giving their will over to God, the control over to God. And they were saying, I'm sacrificing it to you, right? But each of us have this within us, the reins. And the, the Bible tells us in Proverbs, it says, the, um, as, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, right? Well, the heart is another word translated as soul and heart and mind, and those things are translated um, together. So what happens is that the soul actually holds the reins, if you will. And there's a conflict going on between our flesh that lusts for sinful indulgence and our spirit that longs to do right and obey the law of God, which is written in the heart of every person. And so the conscience pricks. Even a lost person, the conscience says, that's not a good thing. That's not good for us. That's not good for others. The conscience is present doing that. It can be vexed when it's re refused and rejected, right? But what happens is, is we're, we're deciding whether we're going to yield to the flesh or whether we're going to yield to the spirit, right? And there is a threshold in this process up here on this, on this left side where a person has determined, I'm going to yield to the flesh. And they've done that, and they've done that, and they've done that, and they cross this threshold into being reprobate. And being reprobate just simply means that essentially the reins are just fully given over. It's stuck in the flesh position, if you will. Okay? And, it, and it doesn't come out except there be an extreme circumstance that jars it loose. Say, can a reprobate person get right? Yes. That's what the Bible says. In Jeremiah chapter number 6, he talks about Israel being reprobate, and in chapter number 7 he says, and if you'll repent and come to me, I'll restore you. So repentance is possible for a reprobate, but what does reprobate mean scripturally? It just means this. It means they stopped thinking about whether they should or not, they just always do. They don't have the debate anymore. When it's available, they do it, right? But notice the extent to which this goes, because sometimes we have this wrong idea that somehow this reprobate only has to do with sexual perversion. But if you look here in these verses, he goes through a lot of different things, doesn't he? I mean, including not just fornication, but being a debater, meaning he, you know, constantly arguing, being a liar, deceit, malignity, meaning having ill intent towards people, trying to hurt people, a whisperer. So a person can become reprobate as a gossip and not go into that, but that, you know, kind of happens sometimes in churches. And then uh, it gets quiet when I talk about stuff like that. Backbiters, 
I mean, that happens. In, this, this stuff isn't just out in the lost world, I'm saying. It's, this stuff happens in churches, uh, backbiters and, and even haters of God. There are people that go to church and actually do hate God. And sometimes I think they go to church because they hate God, just so they can cause problems in church. I mean, the Bible tells us Satan has a seat. Uh, disrespectful, proud, boasters inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. A, a young person can get to the point where they've decided they're not going to obey and they've just become reprobate in that area so that when they're given an instruction, they immediately do the wrong thing because that's what they've already decided to do. They don't have to even think about it. They don't weigh the options. They just immediately do wrong. Okay? That's the, the point of reprobate and that happens on this side. Everything we've seen is on that left side of the diagram. And then notice verse number 30, it says, who know, verse 32, I'm sorry, who knowing the judgment of God that they which do such things, commit such things are worthy of death. Notice this, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That's that vindication side. They want everyone else to join them. It's the same thing I mentioned back with, with Cain, okay? say, okay, well, that's, that's a lot of stuff right there in just a few verses. The problem, and, and we're going to draw this out here through the rest of the day, but the problem all stemmed back to really beginning in this passage with a rejection of truth. Turning truth on its head. Rejecting what God says and elevating my opinion above it. And that's where our culture has come. This is where we've ended up. And, and by the way, it doesn't get better from here. We're headed towards some severe judgment. And every culture that has followed this progression has ended in judgment. But that rejection of truth is the foundational turning point. When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. They saw the truth, but they wouldn't receive the truth. They elevated their opinion. And I'm just telling you, I've had lots of even religious people um, tell me things like, you know, specifically those involved in like a charismatic background and so forth, say, well, here's what the Bible says. And I've heard people literally say, I don't care what the Bible says. I've had an experience. Well, what you've done is you've elevated your opinion over the Word of God. But it's the exact same thing when someone says, yeah, but I feel this way. It doesn't matter how you feel. What matters is what's objectively true. That's what matters most. And so if we're going to correct this issue, it has to begin with writing the ship concerning truth. We have to have a basis whereby we can evaluate what is true and what is false. Because otherwise we can't have a legitimate beginning point for conversation and for change. We can't find a common a point for discussion even. If I'm discussing from a standpoint of objective truth and you're discussing from a standpoint of your truth, we have no common conversation. We can't even find common ground in what truth is. And therefore, we can't come to resolution. And you wonder, why is it that I, I meet people who are involved in, in things like this, and it's like I can't, it's like they don't even understand basic truths. You're right. I mean, that is the problem. They've rejected a 
objective truth. And they've substituted their own opinions. Okay? And that's where the beginning point is. So we have to have a quest for truth, and we have to establish what truth is. Okay? And we could spend a lot more time on that, but, but obviously we're, we're out of time. So what we're going to do is end here in this discussion, and we're going to pick up in a little later in Romans, and we're going to talk about this issue of identity, because one of the big factors is when someone is, has rejected what's true, it sets them adrift in their identity. All right? And this often happens in churches. When a young person grows up in a church, and then they reach a point where they get to make a decision, and they say, I don't want to believe what that church taught, and they remove themselves from that, they've unmoored from the truth that they were brought up in, now they have no idea who they really are, they have no basis for identity, and they are adrift. And now they are vulnerable to those who are going to try and capture their, them and bring them into their perversion, the, the last point, those that are predatorily seeking others to participate in their sin. Okay? And so we'll, we'll address that in this next, uh, in, in the morning service. All right? So let's, have, let's bow our heads, let's have a word of prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for its truth, for the clarity of it and the, the foundation that it provides us and the anchor that it gives us. And I pray that you would help us to, to accept your word and your truth and not to allow our opinions to pervert it in our own minds in any fashion, not to allow ourselves to follow after what we like in our flesh instead of what you say in your word. And I pray that you would guide our thoughts and our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor.